Welcome back to The Courage to Speak with me, Leonie Mellinger, the podcast that asks, what does it take to have the courage to speak up and speak out in life? My guest today is Professor Dame Carol Black. Dame Carol built an outstanding medical career as both clinician and scientist. The centre she established at the Royal Free Hospital in London became internationally renowned for research and treatment of scleroderma and other connective tissue diseases. She became president of the Royal College of Physicians of London in 2002 and chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges in 2006, raising the public profile of both institutions. As UK National Director for Health and Work and latterly an expert advisor to government, she authored three influential independent reviews on workers' health and well-being issues, pivotal to productivity and national policy. A fourth major independent review for the UK government published in 2021 on illicit drugs, their demand, supply, treatment, recovery and prevention has led to a new 10-year anti-drug strategy with allocation of unprecedented additional funding for addiction treatment and recovery. Dame Carroll is currently chair of the British Library, the Centre for Aging Better and Think Ahead, the government's fast-stream training programme for mental health social workers. In 2019, she completed a seven-year term as Principal of Newnham College in Cambridge University, where she was a Deputy Vice-Chancellor. Carol, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. A pleasure. I would like to ask you, first of all, way back, what you were like as a child. Were you um, withdrawn or were you outgoing? What were you like back then? I was a tomboy. I used to climb trees and occasionally fell out of them badly. I still have a scar (laughs) and one need to show that. Um, I was very podgy. I was a bit round. I looked a bit like a Michelin man. I cannot imagine Um, that. That is true. Um, I had a a, a great uh, sort of halo of uh, of blonde curls. Um, So that's the sort of young child I was. Um, I slimmed out a bit when I got to grammar school uh, and I became, I think, less secure and less confident somehow once I went out of my normal environment uh, to a school. I, you know, it was a big school for me. I I went from my small village um, on a bus to the grammar school and I think for those few years that was not probably an easy transition for me. You were an only child, is that right? I was an only child. And were your parents uh, strict or did they let you run riot? I mean, what were they like? I was a great trouble to them because they were very strict. Right. And I was very rebellious. Um, So I think they were constantly trying to stop me do things. And, And I was constantly wanting to do things and go out and play with the boys, climb trees. Um, and they they had a very working class but good sort of um, sense of what was proper, you know, and how I should behave. And did they let you speak out at home? Did you, did you have good conversations with them? I had some pretty difficult conversations with them. Um, I... 
I got to a stage when I didn't get on with them well because I would always be asking to do things and the answer was always no. Um, and so I do remember one terrible mealtime when um, I've forgotten now what I wanted to do, but of course the answer from my father was no. And to my mother's absolute horror, I sat at the table and said to my father, the only thing I owe you is my birth. Ooh, that caused goodness. a lot of trouble. Ooh. Of course, it wasn't really the truth. Um, but as I became sort of mid-teens, you know, it became more frustrating to me. Like, I might have been asking to go on a school trip to London. I can't mm. remember now. But it, but it was that desire for me not to really travel outside of the village or, you know, school bus, yes, but... Um, not, else, yeah. not really explore the outer world. So how did you start on your journey into academia? Because your 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 family were not academic at all, were they? No, no, not at all. No. Mm. The only book in the house was the Bible. Oh my goodness. Um I had a very good um set of teachers at grammar school and um there was a history teacher mr morton who particularly looked after me in terms of making me feel i i could do well i could go to university didn't really know what a university was but they educated me and an absolutely wonderful headmaster called mr gosling um who saw something i couldn't see in myself but he very much wanted my parents to leave me at school. Quite a lot of the children left at 15 and did work in local shops and factories, which was what my relatives had done for years. Um, so I think the beginning of understanding that there was something beyond uh, Barwell and Market Bosworth uh, <laughs> were my school teachers who encouraged me to think I could go to university. And how was it when you got there? Um, how confident were you? Were there other people like you or did you feel that you were different? Um, I felt I wasn't as good as other people when I went to Bristol. Um, and there were lots of people, you know, who'd been to better schools or, of course, many who'd been to public schools. And they seemed more worldly wise than than I was. And so for a short time, I really found that quite difficult. Um, but worse than that, I realised I shouldn't be reading history. I went to Bristol to do an arts degree. Uh, my first degree is in history. Oh, I see. So how did you make the switch? Well, I didn't make the switch immediately. I did indeed complete that degree, although mm. I hated it, uh, because I didn't have the confidence to think anybody would allow me into medical school, uh, nor did I think, you know, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to go from an arts subject to a science subject, and I didn't really know who to ask for help. So I took an easy way out and did a year um, qualification as a medical social worker, thinking, well, I would work with patients, but not in a medical setting. But when I started that course, I realised quite quickly, I jolly well had to have a go at doing medicine. But I did have a very good year that year, because I was president of the student union. So Ooh. I did find myself in other ways. I hadn't found my career but I'd certainly found more confidence. How did you find that confidence? 
Well, I was lucky, as I said, at school. But then when I went to university, I was in a hall of residence. Mm. Uh, the warden of that hall of residence, a woman called Marjorie Tate, really became very important in my life because she too saw something. And she really encouraged me, supported me. I became what you might call the head girl of the hall of residence. Um, and then... Um, and, and by then I was doing things in the student union and, and she encouraged me to stand for president and, and I became president of the student union. So I suppose there were people there for me at the right times. And how did your parents feel if they didn't want you to leave the village? <laughs> that must have been quite something. Um, they very much uh, wanted me to go back after history were not at all pleased that I might consider doing anything else. Um, they tolerated the uh, one-year diploma in medical social work, mm. um, but really didn't like the idea of me going on to do another degree, which was going to be six years. Oh. Um, I think they thought it was all right when I um, I got a place, but then I needed a grant and Leicestershire didn't give me a grant because they said look we've supported a history degree we've supported you through um, uh, a diploma and now you want to change subjects well we've got a lot of other people we'd like to support mm. so I went and did voluntary service overseas in the uh, West Pacific in the Gilbernalis Islands and I think they thought I would then go home and you know do something local in the village and then I, in fact, earned a salary while I was on voluntary service overseas. So I asked the university for the place back because I'd had to give it up. They gave me my place back and I went um, back to do what was called first MB, which is the equivalent of your A-levels in biology, physics and chemistry. And again, I don't think anybody thought I'd get through that because, you know, I had an mm. arts background, but I did. And I started medicine and my mother sadly died in the November. I'd started in the October. And at the uh, funeral, after the funeral, <laughs> my father's sisters, and there were quite a few of them, um, got me aside and took me into the front room and told me I must give up medicine to look after my father. And oh that's what, you know, you did in, my, in the families I came from. That was of exactly course. what mm. children did. And I remember one of the most terribly difficult things I've ever done was stand there and say, I will not give it up. I fought too hard. I'm going to become a doctor. And that was really the separation of me from my father's family. So that was obviously a key moment in mm. your life mm. as well mm. in terms mm. of standing up for what you believed in mm. and wanted mm. to do. Extremely brave particularly at that time, I mean, not only from your background, but this was a time when it was not usual for women to go oh. into the med medical profession at such a level as, as you achieved. So you were somewhat a pioneer, I think. Yes, and even in my medical school, I think they had a quota of women at that time for medicine. You know, that oh they God. only took so many, really? uh, whether it was ever a published Quota, but we were, we were. I think about less than twenty percent women, 
a quota, so they would uh, not well, actually I think, take... Well, I, I think they, they sort of worked towards, well, take so many women and, and so many men. Of course, thank goodness, that's all changed. Yes, yes. Um, and, but I was, I was very happy. I mean, although it was difficult to have said that to my relatives, it didn't compare with the thought of not being able to try to be a doctor. I right. mean, the, the sacrifice, if there was one, mm. and I'm not sure I saw it as a sacrifice, mm. um, it was more than worth it. And you you came to London, I believe, and you got married, is that right? Um, I was, I first of all stayed in Bristol for quite a right. while, so I, I qualified in Bristol. Um, and then I did my early training in Bristol right up until the last bit of, uh, of training before you can be, you choose your specialty. And, you, and I came to London uh, to do rheumatology. So I, I was in Bristol for probably 11 years, but then came up to the Royal Postgraduate Medical School um, to do the last part of my training, right. which was, I think, four years Mm-hmm. And I got married for the first time part way through that. And was your husband supportive? Initially, yes. Um, he worked for the BBC. Right. Um, I was away a lot. He was on Panorama, and and I think it became a real a real tug of war um, that I very much wanted to do hospital medicine. I mean. You know, and I couldn't really give up medicine. Mm. Uh, and that really became incompatible uh, with our relationship. So we didn't have children. So we separated after about nine years of marriage. And that must have been difficult as well at that time. With your, How did your family react? Oh, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> Even more. I mean, we didn't do divorce in the family I came from. Uh, my parents, you know, both really, if you think about it, came almost from a Victorian era. And, and you, you stayed, you put up with this. So not only had I not gone home when I should have gone home, I then, um, I then divorced. And that was really frowned upon. Yes. And how did your male colleagues, uh, um, how were they with you being at a similar level to them? I would say on the whole, at a a junior level in medicine, it was fine. I didn't, even though we weren't many women, I thought we were extremely well looked after, very well taught. Occasionally when you, you know, we, we used to do a lot of night duty and when you were on with the surgeons, they sort of delighted to see whether you could keep awake all night and hold the retractor. Uh, and I used to think there was a little bit of, you know, can a woman stay up all night? We used to do whole weekends. So you'd go on duty Friday and came off Monday and you would scrub for anything mm. that was coming out, you know, through those hours. Um, I didn't really feel it until I got to the higher levels of medicine. Then, of course, it was more rarefied. Exactly. And not not so many women. So when I was... um, uh, When I decided to stand for president of the Royal College of Physicians, uh, one of my colleagues said to me, and indeed a, a very nice man in many ways, said... You know, Carol, I should tell you I'm not going to vote for you. Oh. Um, he said, we've had one woman president 
uh, and we don't need another for 50 years. Oh, my um, And he said, and also, there's some very good men standing, so you won't get it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he thought for one minute there was anything unusual in saying that. He was just telling me, you know, that it was all right, uh, all right to be a member of the college council, all right to be clinical vice president, but president, on the whole, that was for men. Right, so how did he react? Um, <laughs> on, the, on the evening when the, um, the result was announced, it was a big dinner, so he did have the courtesy to come along and say to me, you know, on reflection, I think you'll do quite a good job. <laughs> and then within a year, he told me I was doing a very good job. Oh. So there you are. Amazing. It was, it, it, and and I think it was only as one got further on. But I, I don't really, I didn't feel I that being a woman was a great disadvantage. I always remember the best advice I got from uh, uh, Dame Margaret Turner Warwick, who was the first woman president of the mm. Royal College of Physicians. She said to me, Carol, never talk to me about being a woman doctor. You can talk to me about being a doctor. Quite right. Yes, and any I of the think. challenges that go with that. Yes. But don't come and talk to me about being a woman doctor and, you know, complain about that. Mm. She said, just be as good as you can be in your profession, mm. Mm. which was really excellent advice. That's excellent. Yes, quite right. Yes. So by then, presumably, you uh, were already standing up and giving lectures, giving speeches. Mm, I was. But how did you learn that? I mean, that's an extraordinary skill in itself. I suppose the beginnings of that, and very useful, I think, for any doctor, is you, you have to teach quite a lot. Yes. So yeah. you teach both informally on ward rounds, mm. and that's quite useful. Get You don't have any notes, and you're around the bed, and, 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 yes. and that is a very good way of communicating with a small number of people but then of course you do give lectures to students so my early beginnings would have been that sort of of, of speaking that's not quite speaking in public mm. but then when I became well known for research in scleroderma yeah I was doing a lot of international conferences and national conferences and um, that of course uh, gave you a, a different sense. Sometimes it was quite scary because, um, you know, you would be then with the really the best people internationally in that area and they were very good and mm. you were, you know, you were up against real competition and, and I got used to being asked very difficult questions and questions you couldn't always answer. Mm. So you had to learn how to make the most of those occasions without being too scared. Mm. And have you had any negative experiences of either speaking in front of an audience or saying something that had um, a bad reaction? Oh, yes. I, I was just thinking of one very difficult occasion when what I said about the training of women doctors mm. was completely misinterpreted. Um, because what I was trying to say uh, was that if you're going to have more women in medicine, yes. 
then you you have to train more because women will do part-time work and if you want them um, to be as uh, able to have as good a, 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 a profession and as good a career as say their male colleagues you do have to put in um, quite a lot of extra support and in a way, if women won't do that, if, if you're going to have more women in medicine, you want women leaders. Mm. But if you're going to be a woman leader, I'm afraid it's time, effort and energy. Mm. And, you know, my big query was, do we have enough women who know what they're going to have to give up? So I guess you had a big backlash oh, from women thinking, how very dare you say dare that I? I'm not allowed to. Um, well, yeah, you know, almost yeah. as if, Therefore, I wasn't supporting women. I was yeah. trying to be hmm. really realistic of what... Hmm. I'm not one of those people who think you automatically can have it all. Hmm. I think you can over time, yes. but I think it's sequential. Do you know that yes. if, if you wish to... I've mentored so many young women doctors, you know, and when they say, oh, you know, my male colleagues are publishing papers and they're getting grants and I'm not doing it so quickly. And one particular young doctor, very bright, um, I said, you know, you've got four children. It's going to take rather longer and you're going to need a full-time nanny. She said, I want to be a professor of medicine. I said, yeah. well, actually... To be a professor of medicine, you're going to have to, you know, do it a little more slowly than your male colleagues. And you're going to have to use quite a bit of your disposable income, I'm afraid, in childcare, because your husband's a full-time hospital doctor as well. So I How think, did she react to that? No, she was, I mean, she got on and did that. Oh, she did. And she's now a full professor. Oh. And her children are all, you know, grown up, wonderful. And doing well, but I think it's it's kind of being realistic exactly. and honest about what it takes, and also I care about medicine. Mm. Um, I mm. care about the profession, and therefore I think women do have a responsibility to think if we wish to be at least fifty percent of this profession, we better do fifty percent of the work. Yes, absolutely, and. Working for the government, I should imagine there are certain things that you can't say. So do you think there are times when, when it's appropriate not to have the freedom to speak out? I think what I've learned about working with government is to realise whatever the colour of the government, they have a very difficult job. Mm. And they, like us, are human beings and they um, have vulnerabilities. So I always had some fairly strict rules to myself. I would never embarrass a politician in public. Mm. I would never purposefully say things that would, you know, however much it would earn me, perhaps a second on the Today programme. Mm. I would never do that. Um, I would always look for the evidence and be quite prepared on the basis of evidence to say very politely what the evidence said. But I think you need to understand very clearly that you shouldn't be scoring points. Mm. You will not gain their trust. And by the way, you won't get put into action the things that you found that matter to society. Because 
In working with politicians, I've always tried to take projects um, that would benefit society. I was interested in complex, difficult problems, whether that was, you know, health and work, keeping people in work, the benefit system, whether it's been drugs, whether it was stopping smoking in public places. Um, you you need to be sure you are neutral and evidence-based, and then I think you can, you know, say what the evidence is. Hmm. Um, and I suppose in terms of all the research you did in, into drugs, um, there are there are many potential banana skins that you oh, could slip on. A lot of banana yes. skins. And in the work I've done in the review, there were two exclusions. One was to... Um, I couldn't recommend anything that would bring about the change in the law. Mm. So, i.e., I couldn't do legalisation of drugs, decriminalisation of drugs, and I couldn't look at uh, the care of drug-dependent people in prison. Mm. That one I should have pushed back on. The other one, I was quite frankly very pleased not to have to do it because I could not, had I had that in my brief, have got anybody to concentrate on how we improve treatment and recovery mm. but so often I've been on so many programs where people have tried to make me talk about decriminalization sure. and legalization mm. you know but I didn't research it I haven't looked at the evidence and I got used to sort of saying I won't be drawn and how did you as you went through life gain more confidence was it just by the practice uh, was it because you had you were fortunate enough to have the right mentors who made you believe in yourself? I think it's probably a mixture of that. I was lucky that at different stages in my life there have been people um, who've not only mentored me, but I think in a way um, been a champion for me mm. in, in places where I've needed it mm. or... Um, I suppose, almost sponsor, being a sponsor. Um, so I think it's been a mixture of that. But realising that if... So scleroderma is a good example. Once we could show that we could change both the length and the quality of life of a patient, you get more confident in, mm. in what you're doing because you, that's a good thing to talk about. Um if you knew your piece of work, so my first report for government on health and work was a landmark review with some very excellent civil servants to help me. Mm. Um, and again, if you th know that what you have written has got a really strong evidence base and it seems to make good sense, I think that gives you confidence when you're speaking. Mm. I think what you're not very good at, perhaps without some help, is getting those messages over in a clear and precise way that has interest for the public. Yes. You can probably get it over to your own, you know, medical colleagues. But if you're then talking to a much broader audience, I think some help to do that without lots of PowerPoint or yeah. without lots of notes. Mm. The confidence to speak with not too many props, shall I say, mm. Is, is something that is quite tough. Yes. And do you ever get nervous? 
I'm always nervous before every time I talk. Really? Because you never look nervous, which of course is a skill. So yeah. I couldn't eat before I'm going to speak. Right. That would be totally um, impossible. Um, no, I I sort of worry terribly before I start. Right. I'm usually okay once I've started. Yes. And I nearly always feel awful afterwards. Do you? Mm. I always think of the things I shouldn't have said, could have said differently, um, could have done better. I'm a horrid critic of my own performance. Well, maybe that's also a mark of why you're so successful, because (laughs) you're constantly striving to to make it better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're always, in my view, fabulous when you speak. Whenever I've heard you speak, it's fantastic. And I remember your TED talk that you gave, and... um, I will never forget the motto that you have, (laughs) I shall be ambitious till the day I die. Yes. And what keeps that going? Well, I'm not good at golf. (laughs) And I'm not a lady who lunches. Um, um, And although I've got plenty of hobbies, um, I love having projects. And I love having challenges. So as long as people think I have got something to contribute, then I'm very happy um, to do things. And I don't mind whether they're little things or um, big things. You know, it's it's that interest in life um, and, and having something meaningful to do. Mm. And for me, um, I've been very lucky, really. Well, I think I think um, somebody once said to me, "Luck is where talent and opportunity meet," and you seem to have have been a, an absolute master of that. I mean, many women uh, these days want to reinvent themselves because we all work longer. You have done that time and time again. How do you do that? I think I've been very lucky that people have asked me to do things, mm. but. I'll go back. I think a medical training, interestingly enough, allows you to be very adaptive later. Mm. So the things you learn, if I think if you're a good doctor, um, it, it, you learn to listen very carefully. Mm. Um, you learn to be, if you're a physician, which is what I was, a sort of detective. So you, you're, you're used to taking problems and analysing them, investigating them, and, and I was doing a lot of research. You, you learn to be, if you're any good at clinical medicine, an empathetic person because, mm. you know, you deal with very difficult situations. And, and to be able to be flexible and adapt, I think, not all doctors manage that, but I think if, if you're, if it is possible to use, I sort of feel my basic training mm. in medicine allowed me to apply a lot of those things. To I didn't mind taking on a new topic. So when I started as national director for health and work, I knew nothing about employers or mm. trade unions or the law in relation to employment, but. You know, in a way, I could use some of the training and the skills I'd got, Mm. uh, talking to people, of listening to people, Mm. of extracting interesting information. And I think each time um, I've I've taken that attitude to it, that if the subject interests me, it seems worth doing, um, then I'll I'll give it my all and, Mm. and have a go. And... 
if you think about the things I have done in my career, they're nearly all in a way people centered. Yes. Um, yes. And they are, in its broadest sense, health, although you could argue drugs is more public health. Yes. But they're all somewhere along that trajectory. Yes. Yeah, so there is some theme. Although maybe the British Library and the National Portrait Gallery don't fit that bill. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And do you uh, ever feel that uh, having done so well as a woman, there was an ex- expectation in a way that you should speak up on behalf of women and that's a bit onerous maybe? I've never really felt that. I felt that I shouldn't over-talk on behalf of women, that the important thing is to speak when you've got something really important to say. Mm. I don't think you should just speak, for, mm. you know, yeah. really just speak out for women when you've not got a, a, a subject matter or, mm. or something. You know, I felt passionately, strongly about women in medicine and mm. allowing women to get to the top of medicine and do very well in medicine and to make it perfectly possible for them to do that and then for them to play their full part in being leaders in, in the um, medical profession. Um, I've certainly felt strongly as I've done the drug work um, that women with drug dependency problems are really not well served. You know, So right. one of the things I quite like to do in some of the work I'm doing now is think about, um, if you like, different sectors within drug dependency where we've tended to lump everybody together, but mm. they're not just women, there are young people, you know, there's LGBT. There, there are groups where you could say, we haven't done enough careful thinking about what do they need. So I, I feel you should you should speak out when you, you know the topic mm. and you can add something. Mm. But becoming principal of Newnham must have used all kinds of different skills. <laughs> what, what led you to do that? It was because it was a women's college. Mm. I thought they'll never be interested in someone who isn't a Cambridge or Oxford graduate, you know, is from a Russell Group university, but not, not Oxford or Cambridge. I wanted really, in a way, to take on a college where you could perhaps make sure that women did have the best opportunity to be them best selves. And, and within the um, sort of within the college, there was the chance for women, they had to lead everything, mm. you know, they had to chair every committee. Mm. Um, it, whatever we were doing, mm. it was going to be women mm. leading because that's all we had. We yes. had women. So I, I also had a passionate interest in women in STEM. I didn't feel that w- women were prominent enough in, in the STEM subjects. And I was particularly interested in getting women into business and innovation, looking at some of the things that mathematics and the, the, the subjects where, if you like, as a college, we weren't really necessarily strong. And I loved the idea of seeing women perform at their best. And that was not just academically. I mean, our rowing team was fantastic during mm. my time and came head of the river. In my last year, they were head of the river, both at the Easter um, races and in the summer. So it wasn't just seeing them do well academically. It was seeing them flourish 
as women. So that was um, that was to, exciting. You had to navigate some tricky waters, didn't you, during your time? Because mm. it was during your time that the transgender issue uh, came up as well. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yes, it was. And um, there were at that time three women's colleges mm-hmm. um, and um, two of those colleges uh, went down the route of, of saying that um, they would consider applications from, for example, a man who was was thinking of, of, of moving along the pathway yeah. and transitioning if they had lived as a woman yes. and they were at liberty to apply mm-hmm. uh, we didn't go down that route and that of course did leave me um, uh, with with some people being highly critical mm-hmm. um, but that was the route the college taken I always took the attitude within the college that it isn't the head of the college that makes the decisions you have to remember it's the fellowship Yes, and it will be the fellowship that will debate these issues, mm-hmm. and you, as head of college, have to and should express the views of your fellowship, because they are the continuum. Mm. You know, a, a head of college maybe there seven, eight, ten years; they're there for thirty, forty years, mm. and they are the lifeblood of that college. You may try to. Influence their opinions. You you may try to introduce them to new ideas, but it's really important to understand you are transitory. Mm. Mm. And they are the permanent. And what advice would you give someone who was afraid of speaking in front of others, either in speaking in front of others or or speaking in 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 the sense of something being controversial? I think if you've got something you feel you would like to say, Mm. if possible, to get it very well ordered. Mm. So you're not going to say it in anger or, you know, you're going to say it as well and as as sort of politely and considerately as you can because you should listen to opposing views. And then you say it simply and straightforwardly as you can just take a big deep breath and 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 really try to say it because there are too many times in my life um, in committees particularly when I was more junior and you know on a board when I thought I really would have liked to have said that and very often some other member of the board usually a man Mm. has said it but you know it took me quite a while to think I must get in there fairly early yes. and say it because if I don't say it, I bet there are people around this table who probably think somewhat like me. Exactly. And that yes. they, but I, I think that means you've got to usually read the papers well. You've got to have thought through what you might be going to be, you know, very determined to have your views heard on. And, and I think shooting from the hip, I, I wouldn't advise that. Um, so the so key is preparation. I think preparation, thinking about it, but then choosing the right moment. As I say, I wasn't very good early on at choosing that moment. I'd think, oh, well, perhaps I should go last. Yes. In fact, it would have been better to go second. 
Yes. And and even, you know, when you get very brave, perhaps best to go first. <laughs> Carol, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I find you totally inspirational and I'm absolutely <laughs> certain that others listening to you will. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Courage to Speak, presented by me, Leonie Mellinger. The Courage to Speak is produced by Anushka Warden, with sound production by Theo Bosenkett and music by Guy Pearson. For more information on The Courage to Speak, visit www.mellinger.co.uk.